at in-ear monitors, which means that the monitor's coming in my ear, and all of a sudden I hear this bird, I'm thinking, Philip, you messed up. We're hearing birds. You can't hear, there's no bird sound. I guess, I guess all creation wants to praise Jesus this morning, right? <laughs> all right. Well, let's go ahead, let's pray. We'll spend, uh, we'll spend some time uh, talking about the book of Romans. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for everything that you've blessed us with. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what the word has done in our life. What the, what the word, um, how you've used it to make us more like your son, Jesus. And so, Father, as we start to think about the book of Romans, uh, we pray, Father, that we would understand what you mean by gospel. We pray that you we would understand what you mean by righteousness. We would, uh, we would pray, Father, that we would understand what, what you truly mean when you say that the gospel is your power and that we would really not seek any other power, but that we would solely rely upon your word, solely reply, reply upon the gospel. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us in your son's name. Amen. So uh, for the foreseeable future, we're going to be studying the, book of, studying the book of Romans. And as I've been thinking about the book of Romans and preparing for this for the past six months just to talk about the book of Romans, uh, one of the things that's very clear as I've been studying this book is realizing the impact this book has had on church history. Now, I think the Bible has had a tremendous impact on church history, right? I don't want to just single out the book of Romans as being the only influential book throughout church history. But the amount of people who have talked about how God has used the words that Paul penned to the church of Rome in their own life is absolutely astounding. One of the, one of the more interesting situations happened uh, in, in uh, Germany a long time ago. And, and one of the things you learn about church history is that the church learns what God wants them, learns the lessons from God's word, then the church forgets them, and then God then has to reintroduce those things. The church then learns them, and then the church forgets them. And so in this time of forgetfulness, there was this German monk by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was uh, one who would... Well, he would spend a lot of time confessing because he saw his own sinfulness. He actually ended up fearing God and hating God. And uh, one of the things, he almost got struck by lightning one day and said, you know what, that's God's sign that says I need to become a monk. And he becomes a monk. Uh, it was reported that the guy who took his confession said, man, he confesses everything and nothing is remotely interesting. Uh, his superior thought it would be a really good idea for then this disgruntled monk who became a monk because he thought God was trying to shoot him with lightning to go preach in seminary, to go teach seminary students. And he was assigned two books, the book of Psalms and the book of Romans. He didn't like the book of Psalms, and then when he got to the book of Romans... It was Romans chapter 1 and that statement, the just shall live by faith. And he talks about this incredible light bulb that goes off. And it's kicked off something that we think about all the time today. 
what's known as the, the Great Reformation. But I don't have to really talk about all the people in church history about how the book of Romans has impacted their life. Uh, it's impacted my life. I remember when I was a little kid, I was going to the church, going to the kids program. Uh, one week we learned the first part of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. As a kid, I got that. I understood God loves the world. Then the next week, then we did Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The teacher then made this statement, that means that we can't, we can't be right with God. And the little Caleb mind went nuts. I understand God loves me and he wants me to be with him. Now you introduce this new thing of sin. I understand that I'm a bad person. But now there is no way for me to get to this loving God. This, this is it. God loves me, but I can't be with him because I'm a sinner. So I asked my mom. And my mom took me to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in my little mind, it made sense. It clicked. Oh, when I think of the gospel, to me, it's in the language of Romans. To me, coming back to Romans is like coming back to home, right? Home base. There was another significant time in my life where the, the book of Romans played a huge part uh, I, I was living in Houston with my family. I was going to Bible college, and my dad decided to take a church in Gillette, Wyoming. And if you know anything about Houston, Texas, and you know anything about Gillette, Wyoming, they're not the same. Uh, I was very angry, very angry. Uh, couldn't afford to, to stay in Gillette, or afford to stay in Houston to go to Bible college. I had to uproot my entire life, stop my education to go back and Move in with my folks in Gillette, Wyoming, was very upset. Tried to become a professional musician, spent time and money and energy in guitars and guitar amps. And oh, I spent hundreds of hours each week just trying to just trying to get a show, right? We just wanted to play a show, right? And so we spent all of our time doing this. And I was not in a good place spiritually. I was in church, I was teaching adult Sunday school. But I was not in a good place. I was in rebellion. I was. I was a rebellious child. And I remember my dad was going through the book of Romans, preaching through the book of Romans. I was already disgruntled with my church because we, put, we didn't sing a song that was written in this century. And I thought, oh, come on. And then I saw what the text was. We were going to talk about circumcision. And I, I just got to be honest. I have never struggled with that subject. I didn't think it was terribly relevant to my life. I was already in rebellion. I already was disillusioned. And I said, can't we just talk about something a little bit more relevant than some Jewish people way back in the time of Paul arguing about circumcision? Is that, is that really something that I can relate to? And as a typical Hilbert fashion, my dad started going through Romans chapter 2. The whole time going, this is crazy. I'm half asleep. I'm trying to think of everything else. And then, just go with me quickly to Romans 2. There are these interesting statements that are made. And it was, it was this statement. Uh, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision outward or and not, uh, let me start over. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcised as a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. It was that little phrase that I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then my dad went through Jeremiah 4.4, which talks about sinner, circumcise your own heart. And, and I started to feel the weight of my rebellion. And, and I was like, I don't like where this is going. Uh, and then there was that passage in Deuteronomy 30 where it talked about how God circumcised our heart. And there was this statement that was made of how many of you here are like the Jews who think that just mere outward appearance is good enough, but, you have, but you're not obedient to the word of God. You haven't circumcised your heart. I was done. I was done. I, I felt the full weight of my sin. There was nothing else I could do. I felt like I was fully exposed. I felt like everyone saw my sin. The only thing I could do was walk out of the room, go home, go to my room, and just cry in repentance. So when I talk about the book of Romans and how important it is to my life, trust me, this has been a significant book that God has used in my life to shape me and mold me into who I am now and to make me more like Jesus Christ. In fact, most of the time when I'm thinking through theological issues, I first go to the book that I'm preaching. That's just how it works. And then I go to the book of Romans. To me, the book of Romans is home. To me, the book of Romans is the place where you start. To me, the book of Romans, when, when I hear the gospel, I think about the gospel, I think about the spiritual life of the believer, I think of the book of Romans. And so, we're going to start talking about the book of Romans. And today I want to just talk about four things. Just as an introduction, uh, we're not going to go so deep, but I, I want you to at least have an idea of what the book of Romans is about some of the stuff we're going to learn. I want to identify and define some of the key terms. I want to talk about some of the things that I think we'll expect to learn so that when we start going through the book verse by verse, you have a really good overview of the book. And we kind of know where we're going, okay? So first, the first thing I want to do is I want to look at some of the key themes of the book of Romans. The first big key theme is found in Romans chapter 1. Go with me to Romans 1. We'll just start in verse 14. Here's the first key theme, Romans 1, 14. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am, ab I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here we see a couple of the key themes and, and the purpose of why Paul's writing. First of all, we see this idea of the divine calling of Paul as the apostle. He's under an obligation Right? He has this divine mission. In a sense, we could say that each of us as believers have the same obligation to share the gospel. 
I would pray that we would all pray to have such a strong desire to say, woe am I if I do not preach the gospel. I would hope that we would all have that same desire beating with inside of our chest. So first there's this obligation. But notice he goes, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians. Now in the ancient world, you were either Jewish or Gentile. And with inside of the Gentiles, you were either Greek or barbarian. Okay. The Greek people were the civilized people. They had roads. They had those beautiful marble buildings, right? They had, they were Roman, right? They followed the Greek philosophers. Those were the civilized people, right? Then you had the backwoods people. The word uh, barbarian literally is making fun of the people because when the Romans would go into a new land and they would listen to people, they would go, look how they're talking. Bar, 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 bar. That's where barbarian comes from. So it's the civilized people and the uncivilized people. Isn't that incredible, by the way? But Paul didn't care who he was talking to, but he's under obligation to preach the gospel to the civilized people and the uncivilized people, right? That teaches us something, by the way, about our obligation to preach the gospel. It doesn't matter who the person is. As long as they're breathing, we should care for their soul, right? We don't get to determine who hears the gospel and who doesn't hear the gospel. That's not, that's not, that's not the way that God has ordained it. He's ordained it that this gospel message is so universal that it applies to the Jews, it applies to the civilized people, and to the uncivilized people, right? So there's this universality to the gospel. And then he says both to the wise and to the foolish, so if you're not a Greek and you're not a barbarian, if you're not civilized or uncivilized, well, then, you can, then you're probably in the next one where you're either wise or you're foolish. And then notice Paul's desire, for I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. This is an interesting thing because the audience are already believers. And so here Paul is eager to preach the gospel to believers. Now that's important for us. That's, that's an important thing to remember. Of course, the gospel should be preached to those who do not believe. But the gospel is the basis for all of our doctrines, right? The gospel needs to be something that we're thinking about constantly, right? And then notice what he says next. Very interesting. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Once again, we'll spend a lot of time talking about this as we go through just think about this. The gospel is not something to be ashamed of. You don't have to walk into a situation where somebody's talking about other gods, other viewpoints, and you go, mine's lesser. I get, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say anything. Don't want to step on anybody's toes. I don't really have a really good argument against some of these other things. And so there's the sense of fear. There's the sense of, of shame. No. When you understand the gospel, there really is no excuse for shame. There is really no excuse to be ashamed. And the Apostle Paul talks about why he's not ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's the reason why. It's the power of God for salvation. That's it. This is the dynamic power of God. 
There's a lot of things in this world that we label powerful. They don't hold a candle to the power of the gospel. As I was thinking about this verse this week, I uh, had the thought that maybe the church in the United States doesn't really believe this, what it says, that the gospel is the power of God. And maybe some of the reason that we do that is because we think we have to be edgy, we have to be cool, we have to be entertaining, we have to, we have to give it in a way that people go, oh yeah, no, I really want that. It's kind of the idea of trying to explain to somebody how powerful is a tiger, or you could just throw them in a tiger pen, right? Uh, so the idea is the gospel is the power of God. That's what it is. And because it's the power of God, it is the most powerful thing. It is the thing that we are about. This is of first importance. Everything else is secondary. If it really is the power of God, what other message can you have that's so universal, so life-changing... Other than the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. All those other things that we think about as being powerful, most of them are destructive power. This is constructive power. And then notice, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is received on the basis of faith. And faith alone. Revolutionary. You just got to trust him. You, got, you don't have to generate the power. The gospel is the power. You don't have to persuade people. God's going to do that. You don't have to be good and righteous. You can't. The gospel is received on the basis of trusting God. That what he says about Jesus is true, and what he promised to me, I can have just by trusting him and his promises. That's it. And I love this phrase, it's to everyone who believes. In our own culture, there's a lot of discussion about race, right? You see signs about who matters, this person matters, this group matters. The gospel says Everybody matters. Everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody's sinned. And everybody has one solution to their sin. It's Jesus. So if you believe, regardless of where your parents are from, regardless of what kind of country you come from, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your economics, regardless of your education, regardless of all of those monikers we could put on somebody, it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that incredible to think that the gospel is powerful? It is the power of God. Then he says it's to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Here's another theme that we're going to talk about. Paul, Paul is going to talk about some of these issues that are happening in the early church of you have a whole bunch of people who were Jewish, grew up Jewish. Now they add on Jesus. And now you have Gentiles who don't have that Jewish background. And so the question is, well, what do we do with the Old Testament? What, what do we do with the Jew and the Greek and the Old Testament? The book of Romans deals with that, right? Then, isn't this, notice verse 17, for in it, the gospel, 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. God not only reveals that he is the righteous judge, but God also then imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. That's what the gospel is about, right? We are not righteous. The righteous one makes us righteous. And then we'll talk more about this phrase from faith to faith. I I literally think it's for in it the righteousness of God is revealed and it's about faith and nothing but faith because it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what the book's about. Righteousness, faith, the gospel, the power of God. How we who were born on righteous sinners can now become righteous, given the righteousness of Christ, and then lead a righteous life. Those are some of the key themes we're going to talk about, right? Some incredible themes. These these are mammoth themes, right? Important themes for how we live, how we view others. Important themes for us to live as Christians in the church. Now, there's a couple other things that we need to talk about. The background. Let's start with the author The author is found in verse 1 of chapter 1. Notice what he says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. God is incredible, and the way that he sovereignly plans things is absolutely mind-boggling. God so ordained that there would be this guy by the name of Saul, born in Tarsus, who would be born a Roman citizen. He would be born to a Jewish family. So he's fully Jewish and fully Roman. He lives in the city, Tarsus, which is not only has a huge Jewish population to where he could become a Pharisee, but also is known as one of the great places of learning in the ancient world of Greek culture. So here you have this full Roman, full Jewish little boy growing up where the best teachers of Judaism and some of the best teachers of Greek thought are all in one place. Okay? Then, this kid obviously excels and becomes an incredible thinker that he's able to go to Jerusalem, learn under one of the greatest rabbis that has ever existed, and become so zealous and become so scholarly about the Old Testament and the Ju- and Judaism, that any time that somebody claims to be the Messiah that he doesn't think is the Messiah, he says, I'm going to kill all of you. And then, on the road to Damascus to kill more, what does he do? What happens? The Lord Jesus Christ appears to Paul, says, Mm-mm, not today. <laughs> You're not going to do that today. And radically, by his grace, saves the Apostle Paul. Then, the Apostle Paul then does what? Goes off three years and learns directly from Jesus Christ. So you have this Jewish kid who's also a Roman who grew up in a town where there's lots of smart people for Judaism and a lot of smart people for Greek thought. He then goes to Jerusalem, learns under one of the greatest Hebrew scholars, then gets radically saved and then gets taught by the greatest theologian of all time, Jesus. Then... As if that's not enough, then remember Barnabas is pastoring a church and goes, you know who we should all have on our staff here? 
Paul, and calls Paul. And Paul serves in Antioch for years, learning how to be a pastor. So now he's a pastor, right? Under Barnabas, the son of encouragement. So now he's learning how to be encouraging. Then what happens? Then God says, I want Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries. So now you have this Jewish scholar who's Roman, now to go out into the Roman world, who also has this years of pastoral ministry and is taught directly by Jesus and goes around the ancient world, going into cities where the gospel was not and defending the faith. As Paul and Barnabas come back, guess what happens? There's now a theological debate. And who's at, who's at the center of this debate? Who, who is one of the great voices in this debate? The Apostle Paul. So you have this Jewish scholar, fully Roman, taught by Jesus, under Barnabas, was a pastor, was a missionary, and now he's one of the leading theologians in the church. Then he goes on another missionary journey. Then he goes on another one. And he's there in Corinth for a couple months. In his mind, he realizes, because God had told him this, that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. You couldn't tailor make a better apostle to the Gentiles than the apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is thinking about Asia Minor and all the work in Asia Minor. And he's still looking westward going, there is still a whole bunch of Europe left. I need to go to Europe. And he hears about this church in Rome. That's where this book comes from. He's in Corinth wanting to go all the way to Spain. It's incredible, isn't it? That God would choose and equip this one. This one. To write these words. And guess what? We're Gentiles who need help understanding the Old Testament, how it works with the gospel. We need help with some of these concepts. And so, who does God foreordain to teach us these things but the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans? It's incredible. It's incredible. This book was written, we believe, around. AD 57, okay? Uh, Paul was on his third missionary journey. As I said, he was in Corinth for a little bit of time, and he, he then wrote this book. Now, the purpose of this book, why, why would Paul write this book? We've we, we seen that the background, right? We know where he is. We know who he's writing to, Rome. Uh, we, we kind of see the author and how God has tailor-made this author, but why write the book? And, and this is actually a little bit of a debate. There are many people who believe that Paul is just simply just writing a systematic theology. It's just a systematic theology that's just meant to be read. No context whatsoever to Paul's situation or to the Roman situation. That's not necessarily true. Now, it is true that the Apostle Paul, the way he writes in the book of Romans, is different. It's different. It, it's Different because he doesn't really know a lot of those Roman believers. It's different in the sense that he starts from ground zero and talks about all of these really big concepts in a really complete way. Some people have called this Paul's manifesto of the gospel. Okay, that might work, but there still is some stuff going on 
in Rome. So the first thing that we see is that Paul has this aspiration to visit Rome with the intention to strengthen the church through spiritual gifts and through teaching and by, by, by guidance. So notice in 1.10 what Paul says. He says, always in my prayer, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So the Apostle Paul wants to go to this church. This church most likely was started way back in the day of Pentecost, the very, very beginning. There were some Romans there at the day of Pentecost. We believe that they heard the gospel. They went back to Rome. A lot of people go to Rome, and that's where this church started. So there was really no apostolic start of this church. This was started by the Holy Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, yeah, it's his right to kind of walk into this church and say, let me just add some structure. Let me just help you doctrinally. Let me, let me explain some of these things to you. Let me sharpen some of these things. There's another thing, too, that we have to remember. This isn't... This is a very short time from the book of Romans to, uh, let me start this over. When the Jerusalem council happened, remember when we studied Galatians? There isn't a lot of time that has lapsed between the writing of Galatians to the writing of Romans. Meaning that there are some situations going on in the ancient church that the apostle Paul says, we got to make sure that they're ready for this. Ready for some of these false teachers that are going to come and they're going to delude the gospel. There's another thing that the Apostle Paul wants to do. He, as we'll see at the end of the book, he, he wants to go to Spain and he's going to use this church in Rome as kind of a launching pad into Spain. He's going to, he, he's going to say, I'm going to stay there. He, he's hoping that they'll help fund some of his movement towards Spain. So the question is, what's the argument of the book? What is the Apostle Paul going to teach? Let's briefly just go over this because we still have a lot more to talk about. I suppose we could say the book of Romans is basically this. The righteous God is righteousing on righteous people. I think that's a pretty good way of putting it myself. The righteous God is righteousing on righteous people. That's what the book's about. People start on righteous, he then makes them righteous, gives them the empowerment to continue to be righteous until they ultimately see Jesus and are fully righteous. That's why we use the word righteousing with, N-I-G, with I-N-G at the end of it. He's righteousing. Might not be the best English, but sorry if, good, if the theology breaks your English. No, no. Um, We could say this. This is what I would say. It's the glorious implications. The theme of this book is the glorious implications of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through which a righteous God makes the unrighteous righteous. That's what this book is about. That's what it's about. We're going to see five things in this book. There's five movements to his argument. From chapter 1 to 3, we're going to see... We're not righteous. We start off, we're not righteous. People are not righteous. It's bad. It's really bad. It's really bad. Apart from God, things are really, really bad. Chapter 4 through 5, how we're made righteous. It's not because we're awesome. 
It's not because we can overcome our unrighteousness. It's because we are given and imputed the righteousness of Christ. Then in 6 through 8, we're going to learn we are able to live a righteous life. That process of how we're supposed to live righteously. Then 9 through 10 talks about the sovereignty of God or chosen to be righteous. Then through 12 through 16 is the actions of true righteousness. That's what the book's about. Now, I'd like to just take a quick moment and just talk about some important concepts that we're going to be talking about. And I feel it's really important that we understand some of these things. So as we already saw in Romans 1, 16, about how Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, it's really important that we know what the gospel is. The gospel is not believing in God. The gospel is not, I feel like God loves me. The gospel is not, I just decided to stop sinning and loving God. That is not the gospel. It's not God died for me. That's not the gospel. By the way, that's a heresy called patre passionism, right? That the Father dies on the cross. Nope, it was Jesus Christ that died on the cross for our sins. This is absolutely important. And I am flabbergasted how many times I talk to people who I think should know better. And they don't know the gospel. You know that recently Lifeway had a survey they're doing these surveys now every year, and each year you just go, just stop. We already know things are bad. You don't have to let us know how bad things are. Yeah, they concluded that only 25% of people who claim to be evangelical and go to a Baptist church could even articulate some of the basic premises of the gospel. We don't know ourselves because we don't know our message. So I think it's important to make sure that we all know what the gospel is. It's not hard. It's not, rogic, it's not rocket surgery, right? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is one of those very easy, easy passages that tells us this is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you just to see it. This is it. You don't have to learn Greek. You don't have to learn Latin. You don't have to read St. Augustine. Praise the Lord. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to read Thomas Aquinas. You don't have to do any of that. This is it. You ready? 1 Corinthians 15. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Cool. Thanks, Paul. He's going to remind us of the gospel. And notice, it's preached. I preached to you. So this is a message that is preached, right? It has content, right? Paul will say in the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Therefore, it is a biblical message as well. Then notice what he says. He says, which you received, in which you stand. So notice they're receiving it. There's this idea of acknowledging it's true, accepting it as true. They're standing in it, which means a decision. It's this idea of, believing and solely believing in this one thing, right? It's an idea of trusting, of faith. And he says, by which you're being saved if you hold fast, meaning that there is some sense to, I'm no longer holding fast to something else, right? There was a message I used to believe on how I was right with God. I no longer believe that. I now solely believe this. 
Okay, so what do we believe? Notice. Yeah, which you hold fast the word I preach unless you believe in vain. Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance, not just first, this is the first thing on a list of many things. This is the thing. It's the thing. It's number one, right? It's the most important. Second place doesn't even come close. This is it. So what was the first importance? Which I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. The gospel is that the God-man, Jesus Christ, came down and lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for you because of your sins, as the Bible describes it, right? And then notice what it says next, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And acknowledge him as the only means by which you can have a right relationship with God. The gospel. That's it. That's it. You don't have to get wet. You don't have to jump in somebody's pool. Right? There's no major confession you have to memorize. That's it. I'm believing I'm a sinner. God's holy, and this is his grand redemption. Jesus dying for me, and I'm trusting Jesus. I'm putting all of my spiritual, ba- all my spiritual eggs in his basket. That's it. It's not 99 of them and leaving one for myself just in case it doesn't work. It's in. It's Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the power of God. This is what changes the world. This is what changes people's mind. This is what takes them from unrighteous to righteous. That's what we're going to be learning. Now, this then leads us to this next term, righteous. This is a little bit more involved. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about righteousness, as you could tell. That's the theme of the book. We're not righteous, but we'll be. We are are made, and we will be more and more righteous until we see Jesus. The word righteousness really has this idea of fulfilling a standard. That's really what it is. Righteousness, just in its basic meaning, is there's a standard and my conduct matches that standard. In the book of Romans, Paul will talk about several types of righteousness. He'll talk about this one type of righteousness, self-righteousness. It's this idea that I set my own standard for myself of what does it mean to be right with God, and then I match it. As you can tell, that's incredibly shallow, right? There's another type of righteousness we're going to learn. It's, it's what we could call civic righteousness. It's this idea that society kind of comes together and has these commendable ideals. And here's the standard of being a good citizen. You match that and you're good-ish, right? Paul's going to talk about that. Then he's going to talk about the righteousness of God, God himself, the righteousness of Christ. And the idea of the righteousness of God isn't that there's some standard outside of God that he has to adhere to. Because then that standard would then be God. It's that God always acts perfectly and consistently with himself. He always acts the way that God acts. And so the standard that's placed on every single human being is the righteousness of God. 
If you are not as righteous as God is, you do not have that relationship with him. That's Paul's argument. Well, how can you become as righteous as God if you've done one bad thing? That's the point. And thus, why Jesus came. Jesus came and led a perfect life. And his righteousness is then imputed to us. And thus, this then leads to this next part, imputed righteousness. This is where God views us, not in light of our deeds, but in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then there's this thing that we could call this produced righteousness. As we yield to the power of the Spirit, what do we do? We act in obedience and accordance to that righteousness which God requires of us. There's one other aspect of righteousness There's this idea of the righteous one and the righteous kingdom that he'll bring in. And we're definitely going to see this idea that the great hope for the believer is Jesus and the return of Jesus. Why? Because that is the power of God that changes lives. So I'm really excited about this book. As you can tell, I'm really excited. Um, I've been thinking about preaching this book for a long time. Uh, And I know what it's done for me in my life every time I've read it. And I am really looking forward to seeing what God has to do as we unleash the truth one verse at a time and see what what happens, right? Preach the word and let's see what God does through the book of Romans. But there are some things that I think will happen because it's kind of normally what happens whenever we do study the book of Romans. And I think one of the things that's really going to happen and one of the things that I think will if we're doing it right, you'll walk away at the end of the book of Romans with this incredible focus on God's power is the gospel. God's power is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. And because that's God's power, that's what we're going to focus on. That's it. It's the main thing. And we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. There's going to be a whole bunch of other little minor things We'll let those be minor things. Are they concerning? Of course. But compared to the main thing? No, 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 no. You don't understand. The power of God, the power to change lives is Jesus. With that being said, my goal for all of us is that us seeing the gospel for what it is, that we then develop this burden to share the gospel. Share the gospel with those who don't know the gospel, of course. Yes, of course, it's the power of God. But for us to share the gospel with each other, it's one thing to, for us to have the mindset that the gospel is the power of God. It's another thing for us to talk about it to each other constantly. My goal is that we become gospel-centric, right? Now, I think we already focus a lot on the gospel, but let's be honest. We could do some more, right? Right? More gospel, right? Not less. I think one of the other things, too, that we'll, we'll learn is the book of Romans is a master class on the Christian life. That's what it is. It's a master's class. It, it, is, it is the most simple, logical, put-together, instructional guide on how to live the Christian life. My hope is that we become more righteous through this book, Right? We become more like Jesus. Not just that we're focused on the gospel and everybody else's problems, 
but that we ourselves become more like Jesus. I would, there's two other things that I hope that we'll accomplish in this. The, the, the fourth is this, is that we'll understand God's plan for the church in Israel. There, there's a major section in this where, where Paul deals with Israel and who is Israel and what God's doing with Israel. And th- then he, he brings in the church and he talks about how we're grafted in. But, but this in no way replaces those promises that God made with Israel. And so we then began to understand, okay, we're not Israel. We don't replace Israel. There still is this distinction, not fully understanding how all that works, but it does. And we're grafted into these promises. And guess what? That's incredible that God would even graft us into these promises, right? And this means then that all those Old Testament promises that God made to Israel, guess what? They're still in play. They didn't go away. And you know what? I don't want them to go away. Because if it's possible for God to promise eternal life, eternal promises to Israel, and then he goes, well, you sin too much, I didn't mean you, I meant somebody else. Well, that doesn't vote a lot of confidence for me moving forward with the promises that are given in the rest of the Bible, right? So for me, I see these as being absolutely sure that these promises that he made are concrete because that's what he says. And then I know that they're concrete in my life because that's what it says. And then lastly... I hate to bring up a couple years ago. I think we're all past that, but I don't know if you remember the emails that Greg and I sent out. A lot of those emails were encouraging us to live in love. There's a lot of stuff going on a couple years ago. A lot of different competing ideas. Vaccines, no vaccines. Elections stolen, not stolen. Oregon Ducks or Oregon State. Views of government, views of TV. What shows can you watch? What shows can't you watch? What do you wear when you come to church? All these competing ideas, right? Mask, no mask. And, and, and as Greg and I were trying to think through these issues ourselves, as we were trying to encourage all of us to walk in love, you know what passages we drew from? Romans. This book teaches us how to live as a church. I don't expect everybody to have the same ideas, the same beliefs on politics, on vaccines, on medicine, on TV, on college football. I don't expect us all to be the same thing. But we got to live together. And we, we have a purpose. And we, and we have a goal to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? How do we live together when there are these incredible differences that are secondary differences but still differences the book of romans teaches us this is how you live together this is the give and take that happens here's the things we focus on here's the things we let go here's how we act in love towards one another so i hope that as we study the book of romans that we'll become a more loving church than what we are now that we'll be willing to put up with each other a little bit better And that we'll look at some of those differences and not go, you're not like me. You need to go somewhere else. But it's the idea of you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and my brother and sister. And guess what? The world around us is on fire because nobody knows Jesus. 
maybe we should love one another, encourage one another to be more like Jesus, and tell everybody else about Jesus. That's what the book of Romans does. This, this, is, this is going to be an incredible book for our spiritual life. If we put in the proper work, if we study it properly, if we interpret it properly, if we let the Holy Spirit work on our hearts properly, let it richly dwell within us. Great things happen when we study God's word, but the book of Romans is also very helpful, and I expect a lot of things will, a lot of good things will happen, and I also expect a lot of sin to be exposed of ourselves and us going, oh, don't do that very well. Oh, I don't do that very well. Amen. That's good. So, I'm excited. So next week we'll start 1-1, right? Looking forward to it. Let's go ahead and let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace that you've lavished upon us in your son, Jesus. We just ask, Father, that as we live for you, that you would help us focus on the gospel, focus on the power of your power of changing lives is solely through the work of Jesus Christ. We are just so very thankful for that. We're thankful for the book of Romans. We're thankful for you using your, your servant Paul to write these things so that we can understand them and uh, we can understand the gospel we can understand the spiritual life. We can understand what you're doing with Israel. We can even understand how to get along with each other. I'm just so very thankful uh, for all that you've provided. I'm even thankful for the birds singing in the middle of the songs. Just an incredible, an incredible reminder that all of creation sings your praises and sings your glory. And Father, may that be the thing that we're about, your honor and your glory. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen.